1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello,
2: and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Peter Lawrenson, the Chair of the Department of Economics at the University of San Francisco. This episode is sponsored by the University of San Francisco's Master's Degree in Applied Economics, which focuses on the digital economy and USF's Center on Business Studies and Innovation in the Asia-Pacific. My guest today is Ann Kokos, the C.K. Yen Professor at the Miller Center and an Associate Professor of Media Studies and Director of the East Asia Center at the University of Virginia. She's also a non-resident scholar at Rice University's Baker Institute of Public Policy, a life member of the Council on Foreign Relations, and, like me, is a fellow in the National Committee on U.S. United States-China Relations Public Intellectuals Program. Her first book, uh, Hollywood Made in China, looked at how Chinese investment and regulations have influenced U.S. commercial media. Today, we'll be talking about her latest book, just released, called Trafficking Data, How China is Winning the Battle for Digital Sovereignty. Anne, Welcome.
0: Thank you so much for having me, Peter.
2: Great to have you on the show. Um, so uh, unlike uh, many books of academics, uh, you have a very clear one-sentence summary of like what your book is about uh, that is on your website. So your book argues that exploitative Silicon Valley data governance practices help China build infrastructures for global control. So... That's uh, that's a great starting point. So that's what we're talking about today. Um, so from that general thing, why don't we start with a specific example of uh, where you see that phenomenon happening? Um, I know you've written a lot. Well, you've written you've studied a lot of different angles. Um, but uh, should we maybe start with TikTok?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So. The way that the book plays out is that I make the argument that business models of Silicon Valley firms um, that have resulted in something that the scholar Shoshana Zuboff calls surveillance capitalism or the monetization and datification of the human experience has led to a dynamic where the Chinese government um, has been able to expand its, uh, what it terms, cyber sovereignty, through extraterritorial control and oversight of digital platforms like TikTok. Though TikTok, I think it's important to note, is by no means the only one. Um, It just happens to be the one that grasps grasps the most media attention. Uh, You may have seen, and your your listeners may have seen lots of reports about deals that TikTok is trying to establish with the US government related to data security and um, securing the data of TikTok users. And while that, is, that could potentially mitigate Chinese government oversight, what I talk about in the book is the way in which the Chinese government, through a series of different uh, laws and regulations, has established a clear purview over the data of Chinese firms, as well as um, subsidiaries of Chinese firms and partners of Chinese firms, um, under which TikTok falls uh, a variety under a variety of those categories, depending on whom you talk to.
2: So, how does um, you know? So, I mean, there's there's an element with all I think digital privacy things where it seems like uh, you know instinctively it feels bad. You know, even if it's not the Chinese government, but just you know Facebook or anyone else, a company entirely you know in the U.S. where they know all this stuff about us. Um, But then you know, in practice. uh, people tend to just kind of, you know, click through on all the acknowledgements. And even if you tell them, oh, well, your privacy is, you know, being violated, we don't seem to actually, uh, you know, be willing to incur any costs or, or leave platforms on the basis of this. So, so what, is the, um, what is the potential harm uh, from, uh, from our data being out there? You know, why is it that we might be willing to give it to Facebook, but, uh, but not to TikTok? Or, you know, why shouldn't we be giving it to Facebook?
0: Right. So I would make the argument that one of the first steps that the U.S. should take um, and that a lot of developed democracies should take is to develop robust data privacy regulations for their citizens. So protecting what companies can extract um, from users and how they can use that data. And I think that isn't just something that we should apply to TikTok. um, It's something or other or Chinese platforms, but something that should be applied more broadly. Now, um, the the risks that I see, as it relates to data sharing, um, fall into several categories. So there's the first risk, which is kind of the one that gives everyone the the biggest chill in their in their hearts, is this idea of um, of surveillance of individuals. We don't like the idea that we would personally be tracked. And while um, there have been potential reports about that related to TikTok. Um, it's very it's hard to it's hard to and and it takes a lot of um, energy to, to track an individual. They have to be a you know higher value target. So I would say this is a concern that relates maybe to people who have outstanding business debts with the party or um, you know are dissidents in in really significant areas. Um, but for regular people, there's less of a concern about being tracked and having your data tracked than um, than something than a larger kind of question of modeling an entire society and uh, modeling behaviors broadly, which becomes more useful and more enriching when there are large numbers of users on a platform, when there's a lot of data that's being gathered. Um, this has a bunch of different potential impacts. So one of those impacts um, on a platform like TikTok that serves as critical communications infrastructure, uh, and that we, we saw a large number of um, Gen Z um of members of Gen Z actually got their political information for the last election from TikTok. Um, there's the possibility for mis- and disinformation campaigns, which are a concern on platforms like Facebook, but are an even bigger concern on platforms like TikTok that have close ties with, um, with China um, and with a firm that's based in China by Dance, its um, parent company. Now, um, we also have the concern about this asymmetrical trade between China and the United States. So, Firms like TikTok or platforms like TikTok can gather user data in the US to develop more sophisticated algorithms to become more appealing to users. They can leverage global network effects in ways that platforms um, that are based in the US are unable to do because they cannot enter the Chinese market. So, this becomes a competitiveness issue uh, for for developing better algorithms and being more economically competitive in the industries of the future um, or the industries of the present, actually. And then there's a third question, which is uh, related to these issues of national security and data gathering. And this becomes particularly interesting and challenging, actually looking not necessarily at TikTok, but looking at another uh, Chinese platform that operates in the United States, WeChat. So WeChat has become, um, WeChat is is a Tencent company. Tencent is heavily invested in the US gaming industry, um, WeChat is involved in communication between China and the United States. It's also involved in um, the execution of health codes in China um, to, for freedom of movement during the pandemic and um and and at the present moment, whatever if we call this still the pandemic time or not, I'm never really sure. Um and Tencent is also involved in China's AI military modernization. So we see that there are platforms that are involved in entertainment in the entertainment sector that um, that are heavily also involved in developing AI algorithms that can be used um, in dual-use contexts. And so this becomes a, a really significant concern. We also see the Chinese government taking a much more activist role in um, in, US, in tech platforms in China um, and in tech firms through things like special management shares, which are uh, Chinese government shares of of tech firms, um, as well as in golden seats, um, golden board seats, or uh, board seats that are reserved for the Chinese government. So there are concerns about influence from that standpoint as well.
2: Right. So that that's a uh, great example, because I think, um, you know, one thing I wanted to ask you about, and maybe you should elaborate on that, that sort of, you know, that if it seems like there there are some parallels where there's, you know, for instance, in uh, you know, the U.S. government uh, can also, you know, request access to uh, to data when there's, you know, suitable national security or, or other uh, legal concerns. So, you know, that's that's not entirely that's not unique to China, um, but but definitely the. But, but tell, tell us more, Like give us more of a contrast of like what is it the U.S. government can and can't do, under what conditions, and why, why, how is it, what's happening in China or the, the leverage that uh, the Chinese government has over these firms or access to data, um, how does that differ?
0: So I see it as occurring on a couple of different levels. So one is um, in terms of scale, the scale of Chinese government oversight. The other is the potential consequences that the Chinese government can dole out to tech firms. So in terms of scale, the 2021 um, data security law requires national security data audits for all Chinese firms or firms that gather data in China. Um, And so this includes really detailed accounting of all data gathering practices and the algorithms of of firms that um, that have a close connection with with China. Um, now, one thing that I really want to highlight here is while TikTok gets a lot of attention because of its affiliation with ByteDance, and there is and when we talk about questions of consequences, there are much more significant consequences for firms that are that are domiciled in China or that that have their largest markets in China. Um, but when I was speaking with someone at the the Chinese Embassy about the impacts of the data security law. Their argument was, you know, you shouldn't be just worried about TikTok. Any company that has large exposure to China is subject to these laws um, and we can access their data, too. <laughs> so. Um, so I so in, in my mind, I was like, oh, you know, in the U.S., we keep talking about how we're not being you know, we might be too we may be jumping the gun on TikTok. And, and speaking with a, the with a with a person at the Chinese embassy, I was like, oh, maybe we're not being critical enough. Of a wider range of companies, I, I still have it. The jury's still out there, but I thought it was an interesting perspective.
2: Um, so even companies that are that are what we think of as as U.S. companies, but because they have they have their data stored in China or because they're subject to Chinese law, at least according to the Chinese, that that's the issue.
0: Right, exactly. So a firm like Tesla would be a great example, where mm. um, you know we think of this as a paragon of Silicon Valley innovation, but. The Chinese market is, you know, their profitable market. So there's a lot of um, there's a lot of power that the Chinese government has there. So typically, um, I think about the types of punishments that the Chinese government can lever as being more significant for firms that are that are based in China or that have their largest market there. So, for example, um, you know, shutting down the Chinese TikTok equivalent of Douyin would would cripple ByteDance, or it would be a, a huge a huge penalty for ByteDance, um, and would kind of and the the company in, in a lot of ways. Um, similarly, a firm like Didi that uh, that rejected data security oversight from the Cyberspace Administration of China um, went forward with an IPO in the United States, and then had their app removed from the App Store, um, and their their stock price tanked. So these are the types of things that we wouldn't necessarily see in in a U.S. context. Or if we want to take it even further, the case of Jack Ma being you know. Being highly critical of um, tech regulation in China, and then disappearing for three months. Um, so it's a so the types of punishments that um, are that might be doled out to tech entrepreneurs and to tech to tech firms are a lot more significant than you know a five million dollar FTC fine that we might see Facebook facing, for example.
2: Right. Yeah. And. Yeah. And $5 million for them is like kind of peanuts too. So um, versus like having your CEO disappear, that would really, uh, really change your perspective. Um, right. And I guess also, of course, you know, then, yeah, for whatever the flaws in our democracy and legal system, there, there is a lot more transparency or at least the hope that of, of accountability um, around, you know, how, how anything like that might happen. You know, if someone is, arrested for us. So, you know, some tech exec is, is arrested, then you've got to actually justify it and not just sort of uh, just do it and, ex- and explain later.
0: Right. Exactly. Um, you know, there's there's less likelihood that, it, that a tech executive who wasn't um, an American citizen would, for example, be held on an exit ban um, in the U.S. for violating U.S. government tech policy.
2: Right. Although, you know, there is there is elements where we we also I mean, this is the sort of the extraterritoriality here, which when it's coming from China is disturbing to us, you know, that they would say, well, you know, our laws apply to companies that are companies or individuals who are who are outside our borders. But I mean, that was, you know, uh, their complaint, um, their complaint with the the Huawei issue as well that, you Mm -hmm. know, something happened that was. You know, not not on U.S. territory, but it was against U.S. law, and we we took action.
0: Right, and you know, and I think that that I think that there are definitely um, there are definitely challenges with the U.S. regulatory system, and I think one of the one of the issues, and one of the very very real and reasonable complaints, is that um, tech regulation in the U.S. is not systematic um in a lot of ways you know we see we see regulation occurring through things like the committee on investment in the united states through congressional hearings that target specific um target specific work firms through entities lists and you know it's not entirely clear often how those entities lists are uh, arrived at or why? Um, so there is definitely a lack of transparency in in U.S. tech oversight, particularly related to China. Um, and there has been a lot of criticism, not necessarily of U.S. tech oversight um, in particular, but the the ways in which the the ways in which U.S. tech firms have operated right. in in other global markets and the impact that those have had. And I think this becomes a really big challenge when actually trying to establish norms and. Um, standards between other between democratic countries in the tech sector because you know when we're talking with our with our allies and partners in the european union or in japan or in korea or in australia the u.s doesn't have a great track record uh in terms of supporting their national sovereignty um as it relates to our tech platforms
2: right yeah we're uh yeah it's we're, we're not always popular all around the world with everything we do and some and uh uh at least we can criticize it from from home, but but there's definitely not a, a lot of work to do. Um, so let's get back to the specifics of like how. Uh, it's one thing I feel like, um, even in your book and a lot of the discussions, there's kind of there's a lot of sort of hypothetical harms, um, but and and certainly you know plausible harms, but but a lot of it's not very concrete, and and that doesn't mean it can't happen, but. Um, yeah, I just like to get you know more, dig more into that. Like with say TikTok, as you said, you, you start to get into that a little bit. Like TikTok, you know, if if it has like your location data, then and you're a dissident, then obviously that's you know a big thing um, for, for harming the individual user. If you're a dissident, or if you're a, you know a spy, or if you're a U.S. military, you're not supposed to be looking at TikTok, but it's recording your location data, and they um, you know that could obviously compromise military um activities but but for the ordinary person um it doesn't seem seems like more like you should you know some people need to be really careful with their public profile and they should recognize that that is a public uh something like a public profile but uh yeah what are tell tell me more about like the the damages that that could that have or could occur
0: so, I think with TikTok, we're actually kind of exiting, we're almost exiting the point of hypothetical damage. So TikTok has become a form of critical communications infrastructure in the United, in the United States. And um, the Chinese government has pressure over its, you know, uh, over the, over the firm. Um, we've seen that they're not allowed to export the algorithm, the ByteDance isn't allowed to export the Chinese or the TikTok algorithm without Chinese national security approval. So this is a form of critical communications infrastructure that could be shut down so that's that's one point i mean and at this point maybe it would be um, maybe it wouldn't cause substantive damage to our economy but it would cause some um, and maybe it wouldn't cause total disruption of the communication system but it would cause damage um so there's that and that's something that is that is extant because of the number of users that are currently on TikTok.
2: Um, okay, so that's that's not about individual harm to like me as a user being spied upon, but it's more about the fact that we're dependent on this thing. I feel like, yeah, I guess, uh, I mean, admittedly, I'm I'm too old to spend all my time on TikTok and to view to view it as a as a as a crucial source of information. But I can certainly see like you know the same anxieties playing out right now with Twitter. Like you know, what if what if Musk screws it up and it just kind of all falls apart and no longer becomes you know, uh, however imperfect it was, you know, a functioning mode of communication. So you're saying there's the same concern that like TikTok is now in some sense analogous to Twitter or to you know our telephone system as a as a crucial infrastructure piece, which would be it'd be a, a big issue if we suddenly lost it.
0: Yeah. And I mean, so for people who are, so I teach a class called data ethics of TikTok at the university of Virginia. Um, and you know, my students use TikTok, like we use, like we old people use Google, (laughs) which was, you know, interesting to me. Um, so a lot of, so a lot of Gen Z actually use it as a, as a search platform, which also points to other potential risks of mis and disinformation. We don't understand or know how the TikTok algorithm functions. Um, there have been documented cases of, of, um, Information about the Hong Kong protests, about Uyghurs um, being removed from the platform, so that is a that is a significant concern as well um, in terms of mis and disinformation. Um, and part of the part of the challenge here is that because of the protections that that firms have of their algorithms in the United States, it's it's even difficult to know how information is being fed to us, um, not just through the TikTok. Um, not just through TikTok, but through other platforms. Um, so that makes it ripe for potential mis and disinformation, um, which is another really significant concern. Now you brought up this idea of risk to the individual. And I think in some ways this is a red herring and this is what makes it so difficult to actually regulate these platforms. Because we think about the risks that platforms present um, in terms of our individual risk. But that's like thinking about solving climate change by reducing our individual carbon budgets. It can have an impact, but it will not solve the larger systemic issues of, for example, in this case, the stability of the communication um, system, the ability of of Chinese regulators to model um, US society, the ability of, of companies like ByteDance to develop more robust and competitive platforms, the ability of companies like Tencent to advance their military AI pro- projects. Um, and those, I think, are the bigger issues that in some ways Silicon Valley firms have trained users to not really think about um, through this process of signing away our, our um, agreement on the terms of service, which is this very individual solitary process.
2: Yeah, and certainly... And, and from what I've seen from, you know, research in this area, it just mostly, yeah, people people get upset about the idea of, of losing their privacy, but then, yeah, when, when given an actual concrete choice of like, well, do you feel like being on TikTok or not, which even, you know, the value being on TikTok, I don't know, maybe it's greater for some people than others, but, you know, we si- we just sign into all these services all the time and just like, yeah, I kind of know that they have all my data and that it's, they're going to somehow use it, but it doesn't bother people and, I don't know. Maybe, maybe at the individual level, that's uh, that may be rational. But your point is that as as a at the collective level, there's sort of a, a public goods element where individually it may be worthwhile for us to sign away our data, but that's that's uh, causing a collective harm. I think you you and and I want I want to separate out and discuss two two different ways you um, highlighted that and what you just said in your book. So um, one is the this gives them. Uh, the ability to shape the public discourse, and I and I certainly saw that. Like during the uh, Black Lives Matter protest, mm-hmm. um, you know, I was talking to uh, you know um, young people, and they were like, "Yeah, well, I just saw this on TikTok, so therefore I have this opinion." And you know, whether you can get left wing, you can get a left wing skew or a right wing skew, but like you know, for whatever concerns we have about the mainstream media, there's some effort to be balanced versus like some random you know. This is having an incredible amount of confidence in, like, I saw this thing on TikTok from some person who has videos, and therefore I believe this is what's happening, uh, which was really remarkable to me. And so certainly if, if that then can be skewed or if, if certain viewpoints can be remo- removed or skewed by the algorithm, then then that's a, that's a concern. Um, can we – do we have any uh, – I guess it's hard to tell how much that's really happening, right? Right. Do you have any evidence so of this, it?
0: Yeah. So this is a problem with the larger tech ecosystem. And one of the things, the large, larger tech ecosystem in the United States. And I think that it is, it's not just a problem with TikTok. Um, it's not just a problem with WeChat. Um, it's also a problem on Facebook or on Instagram. Um, but the challenges that we see in the context of TikTok or WeChat is the the degree to which it's possible for the Chinese government to exert power over, over the firms that, that founded those, those platforms. Um, and that does not actually exist in the context of Facebook or Instagram to the same degree because they can't operate in the Chinese market. So they're not, you know, I mean, Mark Zuckerberg has done all kinds of fascinating things to try to enter the Chinese market, including asking president Xi to name his firstborn child. um, so it's not that there isn't an element of of desperation there, but there isn't a, you know, this kind of major market that they're going to be turning away from immediately.
2: Yeah. I mean, actually if, if they had if she had been uh I don't know if it would have been the right decision or not, if he had let them in then then he probably could have had a lot of leverage uh, over Facebook. But yeah, now it's more when it's more conjectural as sort of a hypothetical growth market than you know, there's there's still a lot of pressure on on Zuckerberg to you know try to access it, but but um, it's not like they they don't they're not in the same position to to ask things of him. Um, and yeah, and then the in in Facebook itself, there's you know complexities of like how do they govern kind of their ecosystem? Like how do they adapt the algorithms? You know, what kind of what kind of fake news or you know misinformation disinformation do they want to remove versus allowing the Sort of hypothetical marketplace of ideas to to run untrammeled, um, but but at least it's I guess at least at least they're making that decision under the oversight of the news media and our and democratic processes and uh, and corporate governance as opposed to secret uh, secret processes.
0: Yeah and I think it it you know it can't be under it can't be overstated how illiberal the US how illiberal US tech platforms are in terms of their governance and the the lack of oversight um, that you know the how much we could aspire to a better oversight system for um, for US based tech platforms but all of those problems just become magnified when we're talking about platforms that are that are based out of China
2: so when you say illiberal, I'm, I'm curious about that, because I think that, you know, the, yeah. the cliche about um, Silicon Valley is that it's kind of libertarian. And, you know, I mean, you have, you know, whatever, Musk coming in and saying, we just need everyone to, I guess, go ahead and be as as racist or Nazi as they want. And everyone can, you know, th- so sort of hyper libertarian rather than illiberal. So why, why is it that you characterize them as illiberal?
0: Well, I think that's that's a great point. And I think that there's this really interesting um there's this really interesting doublespeak about how on one hand, you know, Musk wants anything to be possible on Twitter and, you know, they're completely reshaping any kind of content moderation by the same token. There's absolutely no visibility into what that content moderation actually is or looks like. Um, so it's this, it's a completely closed system system. And so we can think about this as a as a way in which, while there's a you know discussion that there should be all kinds of viewpoints shared, um, actually there's a a black box that we're all kind of subject to.
1: slash NBN50 to get 50% off.
2: Yeah, and I think, I mean, a tricky thing with just how AI algorithms kind of work is that they're, I mean, honestly, in most cases, I think they're a black box to the people manipulating, you know, they have yeah. they have outputs, but the inputs are filtered through such a, you know, I mean, that's that's the beauty of the technology. There's such a complicated array of uh, statistical sort of um analyses that what what leads the algorithm to give me one more Black Lives Matter video versus like one, you know, dad rock Tom Petty retrospective <laughs> or something is like a lot about they, your social they, there's, media reader. <laughs> yeah, I know, there's not you know they can't uh, they that, that's all things that um, I think even the people running the algorithms don't know. I think you know yeah. so it's it's easier when it's straightforward like you know removing a Uyghur activist or, or something like right. that. You know then it's actually a human intervention which is more uh, more documentable and, and and fixable. But it's the the subtle shifts in the algorithm which I think the firms even don't know about that makes it tricky.
0: Right. No, and that's that's an excellent point. And um and you know in many ways the the train has left the station um as it relates to a lot of these questions because it, you know, it becomes a, a really significant issue of how how does one oversee those algorithms without completely destroying this entire in, industrial infrastructure? And and I don't have an answer to that, unfortunately. And that's that's actually one of the reasons why I wanted to write the book. Um, because I think that, you know, before there's this like intensive dependence on platforms that have a much, much stronger reliance on the Chinese government and much stronger Chinese government oversight, it's, it's better to at least try to think about these issues um, earlier. Though I, I have to say, I was writing the book during the pandemic and, and seeing the rates of adoption of TikTok um, as I was writing the book, as we had the stay at home orders was was quite shocking. I, I didn't think that things would come to a, come to a head quite so quickly. Um, but that's, yeah, I guess that's the the interesting part about working on contemporary issues.
2: Yeah, there definitely was, uh, I mean, you know, that's the whole shift. I mean, you know, from China, whatever, 10 or 15 years ago, I remember there was a quote I taught in my class where, you know, Nancy Pelosi is like, Oh, China can't do anything innovative. And, you know, and that was a, a, Sort of plausible-sounding point of view in, in Silicon Valley, um, you know, not too long ago, uh, and then you know, then it got to be like, well, actually, you know, WeChat's doing some pretty amazing things, uh, and then, but I think, yeah, I'd say, it does seem like TikTok was really the first thing, like, you know, something that's fundamentally made in China, um, you know, from the start, has uh, just completely exploded um, onto the U.S. scene and become uh, a dominant part of the uh, of the the media system.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And actually, Peter, you you remind me of a, a story when so I actually went as a staff on a congressional staff delegation as a scholar liaison through the National Committee on US China Relations. And one of the one of the staff delegates was from a, a Bay Area constituency. And um and he asked, and this was in 2018, so it was actually not that long ago. Um and he asked repeatedly and would repeatedly make this point that, you know, there wasn't anything innovative at any of the tech firms that we had seen in China and that this was all just, you know, copycat. Um, and so up until, you know, four years ago, this was a, you know, strongly held belief of, of people who were heavily involved in the policymaking process from, um, from districts in, in Northern California. So I think that the, the shift has really caught a lot of people by surprise.
2: Yeah, so why don't we take that to jump onto what was what, the sort of second issue that I raised that you you've raised sort of throughout the book which um, uh, let, let me say how I think about it. So you, you talk about sort of economic harms like if they you know if the Chinese government or Chinese uh, companies get more data than our companies because maybe because they have access to more data than – we then, they have access to our data, but we don't have access to theirs or because they're allowed to just kind of collect stuff more or less without restriction because, yeah. you know, we have protections for some protections for privacy for our citizens or or at least qualms because of maybe, you know, just corporations not wanting to look bad. But but there's basically nothing like that um, in China. So I feel like there's points where you're kind of saying it almost sounds like anything that makes them uh, better or more efficient is bad. And, you know, you it. I'm I'm kind of trying to think about where the threshold is there because it's sort of, to an extent, it's like, I mean, if we really take this competitiveness idea uh, to its extreme, you could say even like, well, we shouldn't export wheat to them because, you know, if they're short of food, then their economy will be slowed down and they'll have less resources to do everything. So it's kind of like, unless we're really trying to like, you know, reduce them to the Stone Age, like what is the the practical criterion of when anything we do that is... You know, more or less anything we do that's cooperative with them and not hostile is going to benefit their firms and make them a stronger country um, which when we think about ordinary Chinese people I think you know we're kind of sympathetic to it's good that so many people have gotten out of poverty there but then on the, we're also afraid of them becoming a more uh, you know the Chinese led state becoming a more dangerous entity so so how do we balance that I feel like I like yeah I'd I don't want to just say any kind of data that goes to China must be bad because it makes them better. We don't want them to be better at anything, and that's somehow no, no, it, no. somehow and it comes I, across.
0: I mean, let me let me be let me be very clear about this. I mean, I I, um, I feel. You know, I feel inspired by the work of my friends and colleagues who have worked in the um, who are working in the Chinese tech sector. Um, I feel inspired by the work of my friends and colleagues here who um, were born in China and are working in the U.S. tech sector and um, and as researchers in in U.S. universities in um, in the tech context. Um, and so, I just want to be very very clear. I, I think the the main issues that I identify are the asymmetry of trade. So I think it's less a concern that um, that there is export, and more a concern that it's just one way. Um, and so I think if there was, you know, if there was a bilateral trade in in the tech sector with less protectionism in China, um, this would be a very different conversation. And um, and the other thing which I hope comes out in the book is that I, you know, I'm very committed to the to the point that. You know, a lot of the exploitation that the that the U.S. is facing um, as a result of this is a result of regulatory failures in the U.S. Um, you know, Chinese regulators are acting rationally and trying to improve national products that serve their 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 citizens and serve their national security. Um, and it's a choice of the U.S. government and U.S. corporations to to not protect user data. Uh, the other thing that I want to I want to highlight is that actually. Um, in China, users have more protections for their user data than um, from corporations than than do um, users in the United States. Now that we we need to be careful with how we talk about it because there are far fewer protections from government oversight in the sense that um, all critical information infrastructure is uh, required to be stored on Chinese government-run servers, but. The National Security Data Audit, which on one hand um, does expand the extraterritoriality of Chinese data governance, also has an element of it that protects the data of, of Chinese citizens and Chinese users by limiting and monitoring how much data um, corporations are gathering about users, which is something, which is a protection that we we don't necessarily have in the U.S. And I think that's, that's an important thing to remember, um, that there are, there are a lot of things that we could learn from Chinese data regulation
2: okay yeah so um oh one, one thing we should probably cover is just since that's the title of your book you 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 did introduce this concept specifically of data trafficking so so why don't you elaborate on why why you chose that term and when what your message you want to get across with that
0: yeah so by thinking about the idea of data trafficking i wanted to convey the kind of non-consensual nature of the movement of data as well as the very personal and intimate nature of our consumer data um, the, I use three different modes of the word trafficking to convey that. So one is the idea of drug trafficking, the trade in an addictive substance that um, is very profitable and lucrative um, and that governments participate in, uh, but that also is alluring in, in the sense, it's so alluring that in some ways it, it leads to the undermining of, of national sovereignty. Um, I also think about this question of human trafficking. So on multiple levels. So on one hand, we can think about the the trade in intimate images um, in biodata. Um, on another level, we can think about users as workers on platforms um, who are you know whose labor is being exploited, um, and that labor at posting content, sharing content um, is part of an kind of unfair labor bargain that, and that is, you know, being moved across borders. And then the third is just this idea of data traffic. So thinking about, um, the movement of data and the way that it demonstrates engagement, the way that it demonstrates the ways in which platforms are monetized. um, and that as a, as a form of, as a form thinking about the movement of data as, as a way to measure trade. Um, so if we think about it at all of those different levels, we can come to this idea of data trafficking or the the movement of data across borders um, uh, to benefit uh, governments and through non consensual user agreements.
2: Okay, so 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 far we've we've talked a little bit more about um, we've talked a lot about you know TikTok and and WeChat because those are quite prominent and people experience them very directly. Um, you do also in your uh, book have chapters devoted to the the gaming industry uh, to uh, finance and health. Um, could you, uh, illustrate, I don't know if you want to try to cover all of them or, or just give us a sense of what, what are some of the issues that arise, uh, in those contexts?
0: Yeah. So I think that platforms like WeChat and TikTok get a lot of the attention because they're, um, they're consumer facing. We also, but there are a lot of other platforms that, um, that we use on a regular basis that have a, a really significant, um, a significant access to our user data. So, in um, in one of the chapters, I talk about um, Tencent's significant investment in the in the U.S. gaming industry, um, particularly in Fortnite. And in that context, we can see um, data about user um, user experience, about user inter- uh, user uh, behavior, location, finances, um, social networks psychological behaviors, all kind of playing out on these, um, on these platforms. Um, in the context of biodata there, this is something that I found to be extremely shocking when I was researching the book. Um, so we have, um, the, we have HIPAA, the Health Information Portability Protect, Pr- Protection Act that, um, protects our, the protects user data in, a, in a, in a, Hospital setting when we're seeing when we're seeing doctors or when we're seeing healthcare professionals, um, but there's a whole raft of health data that is not protected by HIPAA um, that includes things like um, fitness monitors, um, where there's actually a, a pretty large um, Chinese government present or a Chinese firm presence. Um, there are things like uh, commercial DNA firms, commercial DNA testing, blood testing. Um, firms where uh, Chinese firms can actually get approval to be um, to do commercial blood testing uh, for for U.S. companies, um, the state uh, pension plan of California, for example, um, and then store that data in the national genomic base of uh, China uh, to gather information that can be used for um, for either precision medicine purposes or uh, for bioweapons the challenge that we see in the biodata context is that especially in in the case of DNA, this doesn't just have kind of near-term implications, but it has potential generational implications. And so this was something that that really struck me when I was doing research. The other thing was the mundane types of data, that the mundane context where user data is gathered. So things like um, GE appliances, being owned by Hire, um, one of a, a major Chinese appliance firm, um, and having the their end connected to um, to Baidu's uh, to Baidu backend uh, for a lot of data gathering and and management. Um, and one of the things that was really interesting when I was also a scholar liaison at the in China um, with the staff delegation was when we visited Haier, um, we were quite tired and didn't really want to kind of to the meeting we were kind of forced to by our local hosts and it ended up being one of the most fascinating visits of the trip because we were going through this you know consumer appliances company and they were really proud um, to say you know hey we're no longer a a small consumer appliance company we're now a data company and we are gathering the data of users um, through our consumer through our consumer platforms and this is the future of of this firm. And I found that to be really interesting because a lot of times we we under we undervalue the the types of data that, that can be gathered in a in a consumer and home uh, context. So the way that Hire saw themselves um, as this as this data company, I found to be really interesting.
2: So what what kind of data are they getting from my refrigerator?
0: Well, so. It's partially about the refl- refrigerator, but it's also partially about um, bringing you onto a smart home ecosystem. So there's a there's an app that you can that you know you need in order to be able to most efficiently use all of these um, all of the GE appliance tools and all the GE appliance connected devices. So it's it's also about kind of having a monitoring your home command system. And the thing that's really interesting about the smart home equipment is there are a lot of times features that are added that we don't even know about or care about or are interested in. And it's also an area where people aren't really paying attention. It's like, okay, I need to get a new refrigerator, or whatever. This might have, you know, 50 new you know bells and whistles that I don't even want to know about. Can I get this refrigerator replaced? Um, so this process of consent, where we really aren't paying attention when we're when we're assigning the terms of service for something like TikTok, becomes even further removed when you're doing something like purchasing a broke purchasing a refrigerator to replace the broken one that you you know that you need to to fix, and you know you're just downloading this app to get the refrigerator to work. It's it's a totally totally divorced from any kind of concerns about, about data regulation in most cases.
2: Yeah. Uh, but then, yeah, so I guess it still comes down to like, okay, so then what I could certainly see like if someone knows like, uh you know, can, can directly access, like if someone wanted to break into my house, I would definitely be worried if like they could... Uh, you know, monitor my refrigerator and my lighting and whatever and, theref- and my heating and therefore find out like, okay, this person must be out of the house. So, you know, if I were a government official or someone storing secret documents or uh, someone that I guess the Chinese, you know, that someone wanted to target, then that that would be a, a worry. Um, but, but what is the rest of, I feel like sometimes there's also this element where, you know, the firm's the firms kind of want to market what they can do, or, or how, how new they are, and they make it sound bigger than it is. Which then, if we convert to thinking about it being scary as opposed to like a profit opportunity, then the bigger than it is can also become scarier than it is. So uh, that, that's why I'm, kind of I'm asking. Yeah,
0: you. I mean, I, I totally see your point, and you know, I don't want to I don't want to be fear mongering here, but it, the, the, I think the bigger question become these like collective issues. So, the type of data that can be gathered from your phone when you're downloading. Um, when you're downloading random apps, um, potential for a distributed denial of service or DDoS attacks um, on a wide range of consumer appliances, um, which is something that's an issue across the IoT landscape, but becomes a particular challenge when we're thinking about um, a more complex U.S.-China relationship. Um, and you know, hopefully we are seeing a, a softening and a, um, an improvement of relationships after the um, Biden-Xi meeting. Um, but those are, those are concerns when we're thinking about, you know, long-term strategic weaknesses.
2: Yeah. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm just pushing back because these are the thoughts that I have, you know, I sort of also want to, uh, you know, I'm hoping for a constructive relationship, you know, recognizing, I mean, I, I first went to China in 1990, like right after, uh, you know, the, the uh, Beijing massacre. So, you know, it's, it's, my whole career working with China has been, you know, very conscious of like what is the right thing to do with engaging with a government that has, uh, you know. Actually, I was reminded of. I hope I'm not misquoting, but like I just remember a long time ago um, uh, talking to Mike Oxenberg, who actually uh, worked with the National Committee and helped, uh, you know, reestablish normal relationships. And um, I think after. He he encouraged. I think he was saying he encouraged uh, the U.S. to you know get back in touch and talking to China right after 1989 uh, or pretty soon after. And they said, well, yeah, but aren't these you know how can you do that? How can you stay engaged with these people? And and I, I think I'm I hope I'm not misquoting. This is not a public quote, but he's long he's passed a long time ago. But it was something like, well, we we always knew these people were thugs. You know, it's like this. This is a this is a tough government, an authoritarian government, and they have been for their entire history. So, it's always been a question of uh, being aware of that, but not spiraling in, but still, you know, finding areas we can work together, and not spiraling into you know a, a cycle of hostility that's that's just destructive to both sides.
0: Yeah, and I—I I mean, I think this is a this is a, a huge area of concern. Um, but one and one of the things I talk about in the book is the challenge of discussing what I view are really significant, you know, data security issues that the U.S. and other governments face vis a vis China's, you know, increasingly extraterritorial view of digital sovereignty or of cyber sovereignty as the as the chinese government terms it um, as well as increasing pr- pressure on chinese tech firms which incidentally is also a problem for those firms and for those entrepreneurs mm-hmm. not just for you know not just for people outside of china um, and you know not not getting into a cold war mentality where there's you know any kind of contact or any kind of collaboration is inherently suspect so i mean in the context of things like climate, I think that there's a really important role for for collaboration, and even if that role of collaboration does include some sort of data trafficking, I would still be fine with it because, frankly, um, you know, we are we're in a mess with uh, with the with climate issues, and the only way to get out of it is through wide scale, widespread, uh, global collaboration. But I do think that in a context of things like social media platforms for playing short videos, there is a space to talk about how to improve that security relationship. Um, or in the case of something like biodata, where there are, you know, significant dual use concerns, it's worth paying attention to that.
2: Yeah. So, so, um, Why don't we, why don't we close out on, uh, like, what should we do? What's your, and, and I know things will change and it's a, it's a tough question, but what's your, uh, what recommendations do you have? It's something we should be aware of, but now that we're aware of it, how do we deal with it?
0: Yeah. So in, um, chapter 10 of the book, I talk about this idea of data stabilization. So as a, as a, to push back against this idea of data trafficking, um, so I don't think that there is a possibility to completely stem this process. Um, I think the ecosystems are too intertwined. And frankly, I think that we wouldn't want the ecosystem, the tech ecosystems to be too decoupled because of the damage it would cause both economies. Um, So I think that there are a couple of different things that we can look at. So internationally, um, trying to work with our allies and partners to establish um, frameworks for the safe um, and transparent movement of data across borders, domestically establishing at least a a floor for national data privacy and and expanding that across a wider range of different sectors Um, at the state and local level to support and fund um, cybersecurity initiatives and data security initiatives for state and local governments because they're woefully underfunded in terms of education, I think basic digital hygiene education for students at the primary, secondary, and tertiary levels is something that, you know, is really low-hanging fruit. And um, and I would also urge, I would also urge the U.S. government to establish a a long-term policy and a long-term playbook for what cybersecurity and data data um, data security might look like, not just over one administration, but over the next five to 10 to 15 to 20 years. Because I think these are not questions that are going to be resolved in one administration or one congressional term. And in order to maintain competitiveness, it's essential to think about this in a longer term framework.
2: Okay. Well, thank you. That's, this has been great. And yeah, these are these are really, really complicated issues and uh, your your book, um, you know, elaborates on them and, and moves the discussion forward in, in a lot of different ways. Um, I do hope that everyone will get a copy. It's, uh, again, um, this is Anne who was our guest today, talking about uh, her book, Trafficking Data, How China is Winning the Battle for Digital Sovereignty. Anne, thanks so much for coming.
0: Peter, thank you so much. This was a wonderful conversation.